Good morning, everyone. I'm your host, once again, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the July 2nd, 23 edition of Ask a Leader. Today we have on Jennifer Muir. We'll bring her back. She's now the communications, the assistant general manager for the Orange County Employees Association. At the bottom of the hour, Dan Cameron, curator of the current Pacific Triennial at the Orange County Museum of Art. Well, the both of them will provide the heft of vital labor issues and the immense power of contemporary art expression. We're going to anchor you with what's important this summer. So please don't go away. We'll be right back after a short break. Hey, everybody. Thanks for staying with us. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My first guest today is Jennifer Muir, returning to Ask a Leader. This is, I think, her third time. She's the Assistant General Manager for the Orange County Employees Association, the county's largest public employee union representing 18,000 people in the county, cities, and special districts. Among her many responsibilities is political advocacy, and that's why I've tapped her for this morning's interview. Jennifer came to the Orange County Employees Association, known as OCE. EA in 2010 from the Orange County Register, where she was a nationally recognized investigative reporter and covered beats across the county and beyond, including the county and city government, health care, and legal issues. Before the Register, Jennifer wrote about crime on the South Texas border in the city of Brownsville. She grew up in Garden Grove, where she attended Pacific High School and graduated from Pepperdine University. She returns now, as I said, her, her third appearance on the show. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Jennifer Muir. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I had to slide up the little console there so we can hear you. You could hear us. Um, well, on May 24th of this year, the Orange County Fair and Event Center, with its nine board member, authorized a $100,000 monument appropriation to memorialize the contributions of farm workers to the region's economy. Jennifer, tell us about where that idea originated. You know, we'll, we'll talk about that for the first of three different topics. Yes, this is just a wonderful uh, memorial that will really commemorate uh, a group of, uh, of people who truly helped build Orange County into the prosperous, wonderful place it, uh, it is to live today, but who have uh, really been overlooked in terms of, uh, of the history of Orange County. You know, when we read about the county in the history books, we see stories about all of the ranchers and uh, the owners of the Orange Groves and the different political leaders who advanced our, our great great county. But what we don't uh, hear a lot about are the farm workers, the people who were actually working in the fields uh, and and who made all the money and, and, and worked the land to help build Orange County and make it as profitable and wonderful as it is today. And so uh, the, the Orange County Fair Board has just uh, done some wonderful visionary things this year. And uh, one of those things was to, uh, to approve an expenditure to build a monument to the farm workers of Orange County who really built our community. Um, Nick Berardino is a member of the Fair Board. Uh, he was appointed by the governor a couple years ago. And well, he's with your you know, association. 
He is. He's the, the general manager of OCEA, and and you know, obviously, as a as a leader in the labor community, he uh, he's also an executive vice president of the California Labor Federation, uh, which represents millions of workers across the state. And so, really felt, uh, and his colleagues on the board agreed that you know, what a great opportunity at the center of uh, of agriculture for the county, uh, the Orange County Fairgrounds, which is charged with acknowledging and preserving Orange County rich agricultural history to build this memorial uh, to honor all of the work that the farm workers did in Orange County and to really remind uh, our, our children uh, about all of the sacrifices that were made uh, in Orange County. And there, there are just so many. Um, I don't know if, if, if folks really know the history of Orange County's uh, agricultural community, but, you know, until the 1950s, that was the, the major industry in Orange County, and it was not without uh, struggle. Uh, you know, there, there, are, there are really tragic examples of, uh, of, of when workers really had to fight uh, in the county in order to be able to preserve uh, an adequate wage and uh, to raise their families and, and to build the middle-class life that all of us enjoy. And so I just think that this monument is going to be such a beautiful tribute to that work, to the fact that, you know, all of us have a seat at the table in Orange County, and, you know, we all built this together. Well, as you say, Jennifer, that the fairgrounds, they are an area that does um, celebrate the sort of the agricultural heritage of the area. And so, uh, and I can vouch for uh, having led uh, my own and uh, many other schools and uh, households bring their children to the, the fairgrounds. And this wouldn't, this would be a really ideal play, uh, well, a start anyway, having those groups stake themselves out right around a, a commemorative uh, sculpture and have an interaction about what they know, what they what to uh, inform them further about, engage them in discussions about the farm workers um, here and, um, and, br- and what they've done to bring into to Orange County. So uh, I, it really does seem to be a suitable thing. I know, I know some of the debate um, around the fairgrounds and the forums um, that the board's convened have been, you know, well, what, where, where does this money best go furthest? But I think uh, a commemorative uh, gesture like this one is the start for engaging young audiences to appreciate that cultural uh, economic legacy there at the fairgrounds. Oh, well, thank you. And, you know, that was one of the big sort of um, contentious issues, I would say. You know, everybody was in favor of, of really acknowledging Orange County's rich agricultural history. There was some discussion about whether to include, you know, some of the ranchers right. and some of the big uh, landowners in the county uh, as part of this memorial. And what the board ended up deciding, uh, and, you know, I think just really wisely so, is that there are uh, plenty of different uh, streets named after the ranchers and uh and cities named after them, and schools and buildings, and there really hasn't been anything to call out and to truly recognize the sacrifices that the, the folks doing the work have made over the years. And you know, what a great opportunity for, for children to come to, to see um, sort of what that hard work can build, uh, and also to remember that, uh, that it didn't come without enormous sacrifice. Um, you know, during the 1930s, uh, there were citrus strikes in Orange County in which, you know, at the time, it was the the uh, farm workers who were trying to fight for uh, 
for a little bit uh, better wages. And uh, at the time, the growers in the area uh, enlisted the, the sheriff of Orange County, and the sheriff deputized a bunch of members from the American Legion. And there were there were violent violent fights where the uh, where the deputized. Uh, American Legion workers and and the deputies and and other landowners were actually ordered to shoot workers who who entered onto some of the farmland and so there was enormous violence and enormous struggle um, that that really if if Orange County you know it, it's forgotten in Orange County's history and it's an important part of our history and an important part of of workers' fights for social justice and getting a fair wage and a livable wage that really has built the foundation for the middle class and in our community, so we're just thrilled that uh, that at the fair, and then you know also when when the fair isn't going on throughout the throughout the year, that children and families alike will be able to come and uh, and, and really you know pay homage to that sacrifice. Jennifer, I I noticed in the debates as that appropriation was finally approved by the board uh, in late May. I'm not sure how far along the process is with a the locating of this particular monument memorial and b. Uh, who will be commissioned uh, to do the piece and what the piece is going to evoke. What, or we know it will evoke, but what the piece will generally look like. Sure. So there's been a subcommittee set up uh, to evaluate submissions from artists, uh, renowned artists from across the country, um, and those artists have submitted uh, their uh, their ideas for the memorial. I believe the subcommittee has settled on an option, and they haven't talked publicly yet. I don't believe about what the okay. details of that is are going to look like, but I do know that the memorial will be, uh, you know, uh, situated right as people walk into the fair. It'll be a place that uh, that is serene and, and really um, lifts up the sacrifices uh, that that our farm workers have uh, have made for our county and and honors their great contribution to our to our community. So a pretty uh, a pretty visible early to visit um, location then in the fairgrounds once exactly. we people entered the when the, the festivities in the summer are there as well as um, as the school groups are coming in uh, to on their way to the farm uh, exhibit itself exactly okay fine well we we are uh, having jennifer muir back on ask a leader this morning here on kuci 88.9 fm in irvine streaming all over the world all over the farms and cities and suburbs at kuci.org and we're going to now talk take up the um the, the late development in the state legislative st- uh, session, uh, we're going to turn to the elimination of the enterprise zones, and, and we're going to talk about how that change, that major change, is going to affect workers in Orange County. Last Thursday, the, Orange Cal- or the, the California State Legislature voted into law Assembly Bill 93, which will terminate enterprise zones as we know them that is they are and I'll explain that generic enterprise zone is a specific geographical geographical area that's been designated by a governmental authority uh, it's uh, in this case it's the state sometimes it can be federal businesses within the enterprise zone are entitled to receive various types of financial aid and they could include tax benefits special financing or other incentives designed to bring businesses in to establish and maintain a presence uh, in that uh, specified zone and I believe Anaheim is the only enterprise zone in Orange County so Jennifer can you unpackage what um, the effects of this change are going to be on labor uh, in 
the Orange County vicinity and and how uh, jobs are going to be um, new jobs will have a, a net gain. Sure. And, you know, just for a little bit of background, yes. the Enterprise Zone idea um, was was a good idea when it started. The idea was that uh, the Enterprise Zones would create these areas that would provide companies incentives for creating good jobs and stimulate economic growth in, in communities that really needed it. And, you know, I think that anybody listening would agree that those are good values for a community. The problem is uh, that the Enterprise Zone program as it existed, it didn't work. And, you know, there were a number of studies that showed all of the problems with the Enterprise Zone tax credits. Um, the, the last year that uh, in 2010, uh, or no, I want to say in 2012, okay. taxpayers spent about $700 million Right. Uh, on the program, but yet we had no way of knowing exactly what companies those uh, th- those tax dollars were going to. The program lacked transparency, and uh, in addition to that, all the studies you know into enterprise zones showed that the enterprise zones didn't really work. They didn't create net job gain, and they didn't create quality jobs. And so the other thing we learned, just sort of throughout the years and and throughout the studies, uh, was that the majority of those tax credits were going to, and that's two-thirds of those tax credits, uh, were going to corporations that had at least a billion dollars. And, you know, from a taxpayer perspective, if this is supposed to stimulate small businesses and job growth for companies that otherwise wouldn't, you know, be in California, well, you know, giving the tax credits to billion-dollar corporations doesn't seem like a good way to spend money. That money could be better spent on schools and parks and, you know, all the other services that really have taken a hit um, since the 2008 uh, 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 market crash. Right, right. And so what the governor did, um, the governor came up with a, a fix that just we just think was a really great idea. His jobs proposal uh, would repurpose the Enterprise Zone program to more effectively create good new jobs in areas of the state that have the highest levels of unemployment and poverty. Uh, the way the Enterprise Zone tax credit worked before the governor or before the legislature uh, approved the governor's jobs proposal is this: that companies that existed within an enterprise zone would get a hiring credit, would, would get money over five years, about $28,000, I believe, uh, for any new hire that qualified uh, under the program. Right. The problem is they didn't look to see whether it was uh, a, a net gain of jobs. And so, for example, in the city of Anaheim, at the Honda Center, uh, the owners of the Honda Center had uh, very recently decided that they were not going to renew their contract with their food service uh, vendor, Aramark, and so they were going to lay off all of their workers. And those workers, you know, had health care benefits and, and living wages and, um, and, and good jobs and had really been with the Honda Center for a very long time. Um, the Honda Center would have qualified for an enterprise zone tax credit for rehiring new workers or even the same workers at a lower wage with lower benefits because they were higher. So so the Honda Center was getting incentivized for laying off employees and then hiring them at a lower wage. Well, that sends the wrong message about what our values are in, that's, in the state of California. That's so, what's called churning, I guess, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And it's like, well, why are we paying this corporation to, you know, to reduce uh, the the workers' ability to, you know, live in the middle class? Um, and, 
uh, at the same time increase their profits. It's, you know, really it's, it's another form of corporate welfare. And so what the governor's proposal does is it, it actually targets areas of the country, or I'm sorry, of the state that, that really do need, uh, need this type of incentive, and, and it targets good-paying jobs. Um, in addition, it targets manufacturing jobs. So it reinvests in manufacturing statewide, uh, which would boost California's competi- competitiveness and stimulate vital job sector that is key to rebuilding the middle class. And, um, you know, and it also requires companies to publicly apply and win approval for the tax credits based on job creation and retention standards. And this is a huge advantage uh, as compared to the way the Enterprise Zone tax credit worked uh, in the past. What, uh, it, it was very difficult to ever find out, as I said, which companies were actually taking advantage of the credit. And um, so a lot of work was done to try to figure that out. And very little data to, to date has been released. We know that big box stores like Walmart and Target and Home Depot have qualified and are big users of the tax credit. But what we also found out is that up in Sacramento, where a small amount of the data about Enterprise Zone users had been released, that strip clubs were uh, were were taking advantage oh. of the enterprise zone tax credits, and um, and also fast food chains that you know that churn employees and didn't create good jobs in the area. And so you know if, if we only had a very little slice, and that's what we found. Um, you know the idea that that there would be no transparency across the state was just incredibly frightening. And um, and so just so pleased that the legislature uh, agreed with the governor's job proposal and passed it and you know the governor's on tap to sign it so we're looking forward to to a new day uh when it comes to enterprise zones well i know with the chamber and with others that were lobbying against this that there there may be some sort of unintended consequences of shifting the payment out of 700 million dollars to you know, much smaller, I think around 12 million up to 34 million the next year. But um, with it, uh, we'll be interested in seeing how the uh, an increase of the up to the up to 12 per dollar per hour wages to the anticipated between 12 dollar to 28 dollar per hour wages, if that's going to uh, begin to make inroads in general prosperity, you know, with the rank and file that uh, can uh, and with the greater transparency that there can be uh, a, a overall benefits uh, experienced by, uh, in this redistribution of, of the wealth in the state. So for those of you just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader. And my guest returning to the program is Jennifer Muir. And she is the assistant manager of the Orange County Employees Association here with 18,000 strong. And so the last thing that we wanted to bring up was, uh, unfortunately, Orange County Board of Supervisors have another little financial issue on their hand, and it's dealing this time with uh, some IT contracts. Let's start with, uh, first is the Tata or the Tata Consulting Services to TCS, who had at the start, they were to deliver a new software a program to manage the collection of county folks $4.5 billion in property taxes. That was an $8 million contract to be completed in two years. They are now into it in five years at about, let's see, what was the note? With uh, Now paying out over $15 million in the project. So how did the county get there? 
You know, unfortunately, this is what we're seeing across the country uh, when it comes to IT contracts and, uh, and in general, to broader outsourcing initiatives. Uh, what happened in the county uh, regarding this, uh, the, the installation of this property tax system um, is that the county, you know, thought that they were going to get a system that would cost $8 million that would be able to administer this $4.5 billion in property taxes. And um, unfortunately, just like many other companies are doing across the state, uh, TCS made a series of false promises and intentional misrepresentations in order to win that contract. That's the crux of a lawsuit. The county is now suing uh, Tata right now. And $15 million later, the county has nothing to show for it. They've got to start all over again. You know, this is just one, uh, this is just one example of, of a big IT mess uh, over at the county. Uh, they've had a long uh, history of, of difficulties with uh, either no-bid contracts in their IT programs, costs overruns, and um, so, so they're entering into this lawsuit at a, at a really interesting juncture uh, where they've realized that, the, uh, that, that, that this particular contractor couldn't deliver on uh, what they promised. At the same time, they're also uh, pursuing outsourcing other IT functions, and they're, they're getting into, um, into that agreement with a company that has also had some of its own problems. And, you know, this is something that, again, is happening all across, all across the country as, uh, as cities and counties, uh, you know, want to upgrade their computer systems, but it's complicated. And so you get a contractor who comes in, and they convince you to decapitalize. And so uh, not only are you decapitalizing uh, in terms of your infrastructure, but you're also decapitalizing in terms of your expertise on staff. They stop investing in training the, the county staff members who are actually accountable to the taxpayers and not to the, the corporation's bottom line. And at that point, you know, when you're talking about complicated IT systems, it's very easy for a company to hold a community hostage and say, well, you know, sorry, we've, we've got to charge you even more, and we can't really explain to you why because you wouldn't understand. Um, the county is in that situation, and it's, a, it's too bad for taxpayers. Well, it's too bad that we know the entities that would understand, like in some kinds of municipal journals around the country, that an honest discussion, intellectually honest discussion about outsourcing and the hemorrhaging of institutional knowledge and memory have a lot to do with each other and show up. Uh, there are huge fiscal impacts to that, as you're saying. Oh, there are completely, and you know we see that not just in IT. Although I think IT is really the new frontier for uh, for private corporations trying to make money off taxpayers because it's so easy to to tell uh, elected officials that you know oh well you wouldn't understand so we've got to we, but we've got to approve this contract at the same time as they're you know funneling money into campaigns, but. Um, but, you know, we're seeing it in other areas, too. For example, in the city of Costa Mesa, the, the council uh, just approved outsourcing uh, the, the city's jails. And that has its risks as well. Not only, you know, do you run the risk of uh, companies underbidding the projects, which is, you know, typical. People see that even when they're, uh, when they're doing uh, remodeling on their homes. They, you know, want to remodel their kitchen. The price comes in at one level, and then all of a sudden your kitchen is totally turned apart, and, uh, oh, by the way, we need to charge you $10,000 more. You know, that's, that's called the change order, and that's where the profits exist for, for companies that do business with, uh, with, with local governments. Um, but, but in the city of uh, Costa Mesa, for example, and other cities that have outsourced their jails, in addition to the sort of financial risks, there are huge public safety risks when you hand over control 
of law enforcement services to a private corporation that has a bottom line and shareholders to be accountable to and not to the community that they're supposed to be protecting. And so we saw an example in the city of Seal Beach where they had a, a, um, a public jail uh, that that, w- that went to a private jail, and they had a number of problems with that, including one of the private jail guards um, who worked at that jail was involved in a murder-for-hire scheme uh, that, ah. that involved a Newport Beach couple. And you, you probably remember this, the Hawks couple. They, they, it was a horrible, tragic story um, where a couple was uh, lured. Uh, they, were, they were wealthy, and they were lured onto their yacht and oh, murdered, yes. and their bodies were found, I believe, in Mexico. And there was the, the whole scheme was hatched in this jail in, um, in Seal Beach between a private guard and one of the inmates. And, you know, later on, the, the city of Seal Beach ended up bringing their jail services back in-house after so many problems. And those are the types of discussions that communities really should be having when, uh, when we're talking about massive outsourcing projects and massive contracting projects where public money is being used to, uh, to under, the, under the guise of providing services to the public. But, you know, there, there needs to be safeguards in place. And these, these really serious discussions about, about public safety and about risk um, are, are things that need to happen that, unfortunately, don't happen uh, as much as they should. And so we see that, an example of that, uh, in the IT contract uh, at the county. Um, and, you know, years later, we have nothing to show for $15 million. Uh, $15 million and, uh, you know, we, we may be headed down that same path. Wow, that is an entire different program I'd like to take up with the public safety lessons learned in outsourcing and uh, the status with the municipalities around Orange County. We can take that up at a later date. I didn't anticipate that one coming, and that's huge because of the the public safety consequences as well as the financial ones. So I, I that was given short shrift today. We'll let's um, expand on that at a later date when uh, perhaps more uh, municipalities are considering what they're going to do uh, and compare them with maybe the better neighbor models in um, other parts of the county. So Jennifer Muir, thank you uh, for being on Ask a Leader today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That was Jennifer Muir. She is the assistant manager of the Orange County uh, Employees Association, t- talking, breaking down sort of the latest labor issues around uh, the county. We'll be right back after a, a brief break to bring on Dan Cameron, who is the chief curator at the current Pacific Triennial at Orange County Museum of Art, taking up the current exhibit, The Talk of the Town, Don't Go Away. Dan will be taking us behind the scenes as well as in front of the canvases. We will be right back. We I couldn't resist here bringing the Lorraine Claussen um, music, Helele, uh, and uh, just keeping an eye on what's going on there in the Johannesburg area and a tribute to a great man with great people that were uh, working with him in the, the whole movement. Well, now, welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is the chief curator here at the at the Orange County Museum of Art, Dan Cameron. 
It's now the talk of the town. It'll be shaking things up from now until November 17 as the Orange County Museum of Art presents the 2013 California Pacific Triennial. As I said, Dan Cameron, having just arrived here last year to the Orange County Museum of Art, he's re-examining the museum's collection and presenting work such as you will see at the current exhibit. Dan distinguishes himself as the first ever American commissioner of the Aperto section of the Venice Italian Biennial in 1980. And his credits also include exhibits at, I'm going to name quite a few, the Central, Centro Sofia in Madrid, 11 years as the senior curator at the New Museum of Contemporary Art in New York, artistic director of the 2003 Istanbul Biennial and the 2006 Taipei Biennial, and from 2007 to 2011 as the founder and artistic director of the Prospect New Orleans Biennial and the director of visual arts at the Contemporary Art Center there in New Orleans, too. Dan Cameron has published extensively, has lectured widely at museums and universities throughout the world, and served on the graduate fine arts faculties of Columbia University, New York University, and the School of Visual Arts. He was raised in the Adirondacks vicinity, New York, and got his Bachelor of Arts degree at Bennington College. His Pacific Rim location, from where he calls in this particular interview, is none other than Newport Beach. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dan Cameron. Oh, good morning. That's a great introduction. Well, I got a little bit of help. The rest of it, I took a little liberty. So, um, and welcome, though, to... Well, I want to say congratulations, man, on the whole installation, the exhibit. I do believe you have found something for everyone, and that is no joke, folks. So was that a part of what was going on in the back of your mind as you were traipsing all over the Pacific Rim in pursuit of all of this work? Uh, sure. Um, in, in my field, we call it pluralism, and I am a notorious pluralist. I have never felt comfortable being part of a camp or a, you know, a, a kind of a closed clique of, of, of certain styles or, or movements in art. I've always liked the idea that you know, contemporary art is pretty much everything, <laughs> you know, from, you know, from textiles and ceramics and drawing and watercolors and oil painting right up through the most uh, outlandish installation art, conceptual art, <laughs> you name it. Um, I, I, I like it all, and I think that um, even though I was, I'm, I don't, I don't see myself as a as PT Barnum or someone like that. I do think that uh, <laughs> you know, contemporary art isn't isn't always appreciated for its pure, like visual, and I'm going to throw this word out, entertainment <laughs> value. Mm -hmm. And so, what I tried to do, in part, with the triennial, was put a lot of emphasis on that, on enjoying yourself, having fun, um, getting pleasure from art. Well, it's it, it's phenomenal, and I really want to stress to everybody listening and listening later on the podcast that you've got to give yourselves, folks, a lot of time just to, if you put all the the video uh, installations together, that's that's one day of work. That's like eight hours, I'm thinking, at least, to, um, to take in, but that doesn't include, then, all of the intricate uh, work that's coming from all over the place. Well, I, I, before I get into anything at all specific, and I hope we do get a little time to do that, I'd like for you, Dan Cameron, to tell us about the gathering of all the artists, looking up the new talent around the Pacific Rim, and there seemed really to be a lot of electricity between them as they were assembled at the, the Saturday night special event. Um, will there be more opportunities to meet with the artists before they all scatter from here on? 
Well, there won't be anything quite like um, the opening weekend because, um, you know, as you know, the opening is the culmination of the time when all right. the artists and the curator and the museum staff and everybody's just kind of going wild, <laughs> you know, knocking themselves out backstage right. uh, to actually put the show together. So that's really the time when, you know, friendships are forged and, and bonds are, are really made between, you know, the artists. And I, I, I think that, you know, yes, we'll, I mean, the short answer to what your question is, we will be bringing artists in throughout the exhibition. Um, for example, Tiffany Chung, uh, who's a Vietnamese artist, <gasps> uh, very, very popular with the uh, um, with everybody, with the audiences, the opening weekend. And, uh, you know, Tiffany studied at uh, Cal State Long Beach for her bachelor's degree and went to Santa Barbara for her master's and has been living uh, in her home country of Ho Chi Minh, her hometown of Ho Chi Minh City um, since she graduated. So, and she's, now she's kind of a, a star. And, you know, this is an opportunity for her to really show her work to a broader audience back where she considers home, namely here. And, um, I mean, you know, like many people, she's a little bit of a nomad, and artists are, you know, particularly known for being nomads. And uh-huh. um, and Tiffany's coming to. Uh, we'll be flying her in for a, a program in September, uh, for our third Thursdays. So it wasn't, <clears throat> pardon me, it wasn't really practical to bring her in for both, <laughs> because you know air tickets are expensive. But we thought if we we're going to bring her in once, we'd we'd actually do it after the opening, so people get a chance to really hear her speak. When will she be in exactly? I, I know I've got all the events printed out from the museum, uh, but I do you have that in your notes? Because th- she's phenomenal with uh, all of her work is, uh, well, it's multimedia, but largely embroidery of the kind of urban development pattern of places that we all know around the world. It's extraordinary. The detail, the the quality, the, the mindset that she's brought together on these canvases that are cloth. Yeah, no, she's she's absolutely remarkable, and um, you know, as I said, she's she's a, a fast rising star in the art world. So I I um I, I went I, I included a lot of her work in the exhibition, in part because you know, again, from curator standpoint, there's always that risk that things might become available unavailable at the last minute. Oh, so it's better to err on the side of excess rather than than skimp, and in our case pretty much everything we asked for came through. So I said, okay, well, let's just give this, you know, all the space that it merits. And to answer your question, Tiffany will be on a panel discussion on September 19th, okay. which is dealing with the idea of, of kind of trans-Pacific identities, artists who have, um, who have a, a kind of a investment of themselves in their career on both sides of the Pacific. So it's a very interesting um, panel. It'll have Tiffany Chung and Koki Tanaka, who you probably know. She's an L.A.-based um, Japanese artist who uh, is representing Japan in the Venice Biennale this year. Um, Sue Kim, who's a Korean-born um, artist who teaches at Otis, lives here in L.A., and it'll be moderated by one of our uh, uh, catalog contributors, a really great curator, friend of mine and colleague, Yuki Kamiya, who is the chief curator at the Hiroshima Museum of Contemporary Art in Japan. So that's going to be quite an amazing panel, I think. And that's Thursday, uh, September 19th at, at 7, 7 p.m. at the museum, but we have a 6 p.m. Uh, docent tour of the uh, of the triennial before. Well, that actually is the better side of Valor, that you've got many of them assembled for launching this whole whole exhibit, and then there will be, as people deepen their appreciation, they keep coming back 
to the museum to, to see section by section what you've got there, that there will be those artists that are coming on later with the many fine events planned. I'm so glad to hear that we're going to get a chance to meet her because I, I, it wasn't lost on me. Her, she was born in Da Nang, I think, Da Nang, in 1969. And folks, we know a lot was cooking right around there. Lots was blowing up all around her as she was entering the world. So, it, yes, her sensibilities do cover a lot of experience. Yeah, sure. Her family came to America when she was a, a, small, a toddler, and she uh, and she went back. I mean, as as anyone can tell you right now, um, Vietnam is an amazing place for kind of investments and new opportunities. It's in, and not unsurprisingly, it's also getting a lot of attention in terms of its contemporary art scene. Yes, yes. After a long period of there being maybe one living Vietnamese artist people could name, and then maybe two living Vietnamese, suddenly there's this whole generation, a real a real wave of, of younger artists, and um, they're very committed to their country, and they're, they're, um, they're very comfortable working on an international level like Tiffany, and, and, and yet being very much promoters and boosters of, um, of, of their home countries. And it's along the sort of to reinforce the Pacific Rim theme are these artists with very much the hybrid backgrounds all over the the world, but around the Pacific Rim included. It's really extraordinary. Well, we ha- I actually was drawn to certain artworks that examine trans-Pacific, um, you know, kind of cultural exchanges. For example, um, Kim Suja, who's a Korean artist, um, made a video in 2011 that I happened to see about a year ago when I was just starting my research, uh, all about indigenous weavers in Peru. So the kind of Andean uh, culture of weaving, which goes back hundreds of years, and I think anyone who knows the subject would agree that Peru has one of the most amazing textile (laughs) traditions in the planet today, if not the single best. And what Kim Sucha does in her video is is look at the movement, not the not the textile itself, but the movement, the kind of the grace and choreography of the artisans who make the textiles, and it's just the most captivating thing you could possibly imagine. And I thought, well, that's interesting. There's a gaze across the across the Pacific, you know, in a in a, in a very particular way that um, I think links these two sorts of cultural identities. I mean, on, on the other hand, we have a work that's gotten a lot of comment, uh, which is uh, a 2010 piece by Fernando Bryce, a Peruvian artist who uh, created, a, I think, about a 132-panel um, series of drawings dealing with the history of uh, German colonization of the South Pacific, mm-hmm. which um, was a relatively short uh, endeavor. It lasted maybe 30, 40 years at the most, and only consisted of quite small territories, or relatively small territories, mm-hmm. Samoa, uh, Papua New Guinea, the Marshall Islands. Uh, and yet it produced this very rich, uh, visually and conceptually, uh, literature of uh, material that Bryce sort of plundered to make these 132 drawings that are really of a, of a if, you, if you break it down, it's of a Peruvian today looking through the eyes of a 19th century German and mm-hmm. seeing what a South Sea Islander or South, South Sea culture, island culture is, what that is or who those people are. And it's just the most extraordinary visit. I thought, okay, with well, another example of, you know, trans-Pacific gazes uh, kind of having existed for a very long time. 
And then I, because I don't think anybody could even imagine, and I'm, uh, it's no spoiler alert necessary kind of thing, and I'm going to really mess the name up here. Araya Rasjar Rimsurnsuk, uh, with the, the, the visual and um, the multi-visual aspect of, of, a, of Asian villagers observing Western art. I don't know if you want to just over the radio break that down a wee bit so people know it's a, as a, it's kind of a teaser to get them in there and and get and keep having them coming back to the museum. Oh sure, well um, Aria, uh, Jarman, <laughs> and you did a valiant attempt. I have to say. <clears throat> um, she's an artist whose work is, has fascinated me for a long time, and I've worked with her on, on several occasions. She lives in Chiang Mai in northern Thailand, which is kind of a fabulous artist retreat, sort of semi-rural. But, but also kind of accessible, not remote at all sort of place. But she's in a sort of a rural area. And, you know, for her entire career as a visual artist, she's also a very famous poet in, in Thailand. Oh. She has focused on, let's just say, um, Thai subjects by and large, like the, the people and, and um, particularly the, the people around her or culture. So in a way, she's, uh, she's acted as a... What do, you, what do you want to say? An intermediary uh, between sort of Thailand and, and the outside or uh, the outside world, and but especially in terms of visual arts. Uh, even if I get into more detail, it's going to get sidetracked. So this particular work, which is called um, uh, Two Planets, is about her kind of stopping midway in her career and looking at the people around her who have been the subjects of her work and saying. Now wait a minute. Here I am. I'm a I'm a, I'm a quote unquote important artist in the West. My work is being um, slowly uh, kind of rationalized into a, a Western sort of art canon about global art today. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And and yet I've given nothing back. And so she. I, I mean I think that was really the the most important impetus. So she had life size reproductions, like very good high-quality reproductions of several, uh, you know, Western masterpieces from Rembrandt's Anatomy Lesson, you know, to a Jeff Koons or a Cindy Sherman photo from the 80s. And they're presented in this very sort of high-production, just eye-popping way um, to the the Thai villagers, either outside uh, or in an area, you know, Near with their homes, or in a couple of cases, inside of a temple, where you know, the, the works are surrounded by, you know, very vivid uh, paintings that are kind of part of the whole iconography of the of the religion, and it's just amazing to sort of overhear these conversations, or to suddenly think about, you know, how exotic the art of our culture seems when you move it um, into another environment and, and watch how people uh, relate to it. It really gives you a double take about you know, the implications of, of looking at the other and sort of exoticizing um, a culture that really the only thing about it is that you don't know about it. It's not really exotic at all. Right. All right. And that's what why I use that as an example to emphasize how much is going on here for people to really count on taking time and repeating the visit because you, uh, I've never seen anything like this. And at first, you're not sure quite what she's trying to do with the um, if whether there's for the the video aspect of the what's the uh, the two planets, uh, Millet's uh, Gleaners and the Thai Farmers, where they're it's actually their own commentary. They're they're watching. Yeah. They're, they're making some very sort of a 
uh, pedestrian comments about, you know, what those labors are doing versus what they're doing within that in their laboring setting. It was just it's really extraordinary once you yeah. figure out what's going on and you don't know. I mean, that's the thing about video loops. Uh, the visitor never knows how long any of them last. So you never know how how devoted you need to be at any one of them. And then you realize, oh, my God, they're going to close in 45 minutes. And I've, I've, <laughs> I've only gone into the second chamber of the whole exhibit. So it's um, well, so, well, just to let people know that we do include on our labels the length, the duration of all of our videos. Um, so that if you if you check the label copy, you, you'll see that, you know, some things are 10 minutes, some things are 20 minutes, some things are 50 minutes. Right. So it's a, it's a full. It we it, I, it's true. You can spend hours and hours just with the video. Just but because. I also think you can spend hours and hours just with the with all the others. That work. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, for those of you who've just tuned in to Ask a Leader here on eighty-eight point nine FM in Irvine, on KCR KUCI, it's uh, Dan Cameron. He's the chief curator leading us talking about the marvel of an exhibition the 2013 california pacific triennial and uh then we can move on well i was thinking it's going to be a little tricky with some of the really graphic stuff going on you're going to be steering the kids around when they do their tours from between uh now and november 17 and a docent that um does this kind of thing all the time at the art museum uh assures me that you all know exactly what you're doing with steering people past some tricky material. I mean, like, I can't imagine uh, them uh, seeing that particular, the Mexican exhibit that I, I, I guess it's a teaser, but it, in a way of it just making a point, you can lead them past that. This particular uh, Mexican exhibit, you'll remind me of the artist, because uh, there's so many, and there's there's so many male, there's some androgynous names and uh, ma, uh, a hetero heterocultural names uh, that I um, can't call them all up. But anyway, in that particular video installation, it's about the collusion of the Mexican media with the cartels around the whole violent theme. So you got to march the school kids past that. But that that was, I was able to listen to the artist talk to uh, other patrons about you know what he's trying to do with this extraordinary video that I we, you can say a word or two about and then we can look at some other aspects. Um, well, this is an artist um, whose name is Joshua Ocon. He's actually um, pretty well known. He got his master's degree at UCLA, uh, studied with Paul McCarthy. But he's, um, you know, he's born in Mexico City, and he returned to Mexico City, you know, after about I would say five or six years living in LA. And before he came here, he uh, opened a very what is now a very prominent kind of alternative space called La Panaderia, and he's. Um, since he's gone back to Mexico City, he started kind of an art institute called SOMA. And he's, so he's quite a mover and shaker. His, his name sounds unfamiliar, perhaps, because people may not be accustomed to um, uh, Hispanic phrasing of Jewish names. But he's, it's a, Ocon is, a, is, a, is an Ashkenazi, I believe, um, or Sephardic Judas, Jewish name. And he comes from a long family of, of, of immigration from, from Europe to, to Mexico. Um, in any case, he, he developed this work. He, his work is always about um, kind of taking people who don't have power and putting them in a situation where they can feel like they do have power and kind of stepping back and recording the results. So like, um, you know, like a lot of people, he's been kind of watching not just the violence in, in Mexico due to the narco trafficking, but also uh, the media's response to that violence. And he... he has noticed, and I think in the United States we have the same problem, that media sensationalizes certain kind of violence um, for sometimes not so uh, covert political reasons. 
and uh, in, you know, in the last election, presidential election in Mexico, in particular, the uh, the pre, uh, the, the 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 party that had been governing the country for some ninety some or more years. Yeah, <laughs> um, there's a pause, and, and now they're back. Voted back it was just kind of voted back into you know into power. Uh, they they were really uh, quite shocking in the way they deployed these images of, of, you know, a situation that is really preoccupying to most ordinary Mexicans. And uh, so what Yashua, I think, was thinking about was, well, okay, if this is what happens when a very powerful political party um, sets out to not uh, address people's fears or quell people's fears, but to actually exploit them, what do people do? What do what do, what do regular people do to kind of rid themselves, exercise themselves right. of that kind of fear? So he hunted around, and hunted around. He was particularly looking for small, uh, even amateur kind of community theater groups that specialized in sort of horror theater, like kind of shock theater. And he found this one particular group that carried out these uh, kind of elaborate ritualistic sort of performances that were all about sacrifice and, uh, you know, kind of kind of a ghoulishness. But, you know, it's, um, I mean, anyone who's been to a Hollywood film in which, you know, terrible things happen to people and disasters occur and, you know, evil runs rampant, will find the effects of the video and the theater piece that it's based on to be totally laughable. I mean, there's nothing remotely scary about the piece. Um, in fact, I think school children would probably giggle. Although I do, I agree with you that docents will, depending on the age, will be kind of r- rushing them through. But at the same time, you, you get the idea that for the performers in particular, but also for their audience, and these are mostly small audiences, this ritual, this theater has a very cathartic effect. It, it, it gets the fear out of you. It's like kind of pulling the pus out of the infection. Yes. And uh, it, I, find that, I find it really uh, a stunning piece, although, yes, there are certain images that are hard to look at, um, unless you remind yourself that, you know, it's just, you know, it's not really organs. It's just some leftover stuff got, you know, obtained from the butcher <laughs> right, right. <laughs> on, the, on right. the way to the theater and just kind of gussied up and thrown around to make it look like it's something shocking. It is. Well, I'd like to um, pivot away from how super graphic that is with the, with the really detailed work in Pedro Friedeberg's work. Yeah, well, Pedro Just, Friedeberg is, was a discovery for me. And I, I, in a way, um, I really went overboard with installing his work and <laughs> selecting a lot of pieces. There's a lot. A lot of Tiffany Chung. Um, and that's because I, I, was, I was trying to, in a way, kind of, make up for the fact that I had been so uninformed about the work until until this time. Uh, Pedro Friedberg is an um, artist in his mid-70s. Uh, no kidding. Um, yes, he was very much a part of the whole pop and kind of swinging 70s, the sort of psychedelic 70s in Mexico City. Uh, he was he was a well-known sort of playboy and some say gigolo. <laughs> really? Married, yes, married and dated um, Mexican movie and television stars, uh, and was constantly seen as sort of a you know man about town, and he became wildly successful as, as a young man by inventing the hand chair, this sculptural chair that is just shaped like a human hand, and you sit in it. Everybody's seen it. Right. It's, it's an iconic image. It's there too um, of the '60s, mm-hmm. and it made him a very wealthy man. But um, the thing is, is that he was primarily saw himself as a painter. So for most of his career, since the early 60s, uh, 
Friedberg has been focused on making these very intricate, um, some would say Escher-inspired, um, um, examples of, of work. And he just, uh, you know, he, he's become extremely widely known. He's a household name uh, in Mexico. And yet he's just, it, he seems to be completely unknown north of the border, except in very specialized um, circles. So what's happened is that we just, I've just kind of, said, you know, this is so related to what a lot of young artists in Southern California are interested in right now. You know, it seems to have a lot to do with surf culture, with skateboard culture. Uh, and so I thought, well, maybe maybe a, bi- a triennial, you know, which is often thought of as a place where you uh, kind of create a pa- platform for emerging artists can also be a platform for artists who are very distinguished, who've, who've done amazing things over a long career, but just happen to not be familiar to the particular audience that, that you're addressing. Amen. You've done it for sure. And I, I guess we need to wrap up. Um, well, uh, there are many events, as Dan Cameron, uh, chief curator at Orange County Museum of Art, my guest right now, has mentioned that. And you can find out more about all those events by going on to the, the website for the museum at ocma.net. It's located at the museum itself at 850 San Clemente Drive in Newport Beach. And I'm going to quickly give the number 949 949- Seven five nine, eleven twenty two, and uh, the, ever the curator, your uh, your your view onto the next phase this summer. You're going to be off again. All points around the Pacific Rim, including China, Korea, Japan, Indonesia, the Philippines, Peru, Colombia, uh, for additional research toward the triennial. Um, what and are don't forget Honduras and Guatemala. Okay, I mean, this is the first time in the recent years when you know Central American countries are also. Um, playing a, playing a very significant role in uh, the kind of discussion about global art, and I think it's a wonderful and very welcome development. And we have two amazing artists, um, Adan Vallejo from 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 Honduras and Dario Escobar from from Guatemala, um, who've just done the most amazing projects for us. And I'm, I'm very very pleased with with both their works. But yes, we've tried to make sure that that's a <laughs> that's a uh, an acknowledged uh, development within well, the scope of the triennial. It's all a marvel. Thank you so much for bringing so much for us to take in and giving us enough months to uh, take every opportunity to to pick up where we left off from the, the previous visit. Dan Cameron, Chief Curator at the 20, of the 2013 California Pacific Triennial, thank you for coming today on Ask a Leader. Well, thank you, and, and enjoy. Oh, I surely shall, many times. Well, what we're going to do is close out. That's the Orange County Museum of Art. As I said, the exhibit, we're going to uh, head over to George Hadhat in just a moment. I want to post you next week. We'll have on Uni High Assistant Principal Mike Giorgino to take up the pervasive phenomenon of the city's culture of overachievement and the toll it takes on the students, and I might add the toll on their households for consideration. Then we'll hear from Karen Cox, board member of Women in Leadership, about Hogue Hospital's decision to discontinue offering the so-called direct abortion services at all their hospitals. Next up is George Had a Hat. Thank you for joining us today, everyone. Here we go with a little pieces of, from an exhibition, pictures to follow it all up. Mm-hmm. 